0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Uh, and of course, if you're a Patreon uh, follower of mine, then your questions go right to the top of the queue. Uh, otherwise, I've got this very long queue of questions to answer and I'm getting to them as fast as I can. There are some really great ones by the way. You guys are just awesome with, the, with some of the questions. Um, I want to give you a couple updates on some things before we get into answering the questions because there's been some kind of fun and interesting and exciting things going on. Um, my life is nothing if not uh, busy. Uh, first off, I wanted to let you guys, I wanted to kind of announce here. It, it hasn't actually been published yet, but uh, a friend of mine and I, John Stewart, wrote, uh, co-wrote an academic paper about Scientology, which has now they've agreed to publish it, and so that's going to go up soon. And when it does, I'll post a link uh, here on my channel and get that around. So if you know if you guys are interested in seeing that, you can. Uh, we have another one up being uh, up for peer review right now, and I hope to get uh, at least one more done uh, this year, maybe two. Uh, in partnership with some other academic uh, folks because I think getting published is a very important thing uh, for the you know, advancement of being taken seriously in the cult recovery and you know, extremism field uh, and getting published is a great way to do that. Also um, this week I got my first sponsor for my channel uh, I, you know, I've I've I took a while doing this because I wanted to find something that I'd actually want to endorse and talk about anyway. So uh, you'll see a little commercial insert in the episode here, and of course you can skip over it if you want. But it's actually uh, a really good service. So anyway, I'm very very excited about it, and uh, I hope and I look forward to um, seeing the results of sharing that with you. And uh, finally. Um, There is a message tacked on at the end of this video and will be for a few weeks uh, coming into the future here of all my videos. But there's more about that at the end of this video that you can check out. So please do check that out. All right, let's get on with your questions now. Gary Lulu, I was finally able to watch that announcement David Miscavige made to Scientologists in 1986. I believe that was correct year. While he announced the passing of L. Ron Hubbard, I couldn't help but wonder what was going through David Miscavige's head as he was making that speech. Do you think he was already planning to take over Scientology at that early stage? Also, is it indicative of all destructive cults to not have a secession plan in place once the guru dies or drops his or her body to move on to new and uncharted levels of enlightenment? Well, thanks for asking, Gary, and um, actually, this is kind of an interesting topic because I'm reading the new book that just came out a couple days ago by Jesse Prince um, called Expert Witness, which is his testimony or memoir about his experiences in Scientology, and he worked one-on-one with David Miscavige for years and had quite a bit to say about that time period. I'm only about halfway through the book. I'm really looking forward to interviewing Jesse on my channel here, by the way. That'll be coming up uh, probably pretty soon. Uh, he agreed to do it, we just need to figure out the timing and stuff, we need to finish the book. But he talks a lot about David Miscavige during that time period, and I already knew a lot of this, but some of the, um, some of the inside data and some of the observations Jesse makes are, are absolutely fascinating. And one of them being uh, absolutely confirming that David Miscavige was pretty much already well in hand and having in, in being uh, you know pretty much in charge of the day to day operations of scientology on a ground you know on the ground level, I mean he was the one making a lot of the decisions having to do with what was going on with Scientology well before Hubbard uh, dropped his body or you know it was announced that he had died so um, so that was that was you know he'd been maneuvering and making things happen and getting himself in place and and, and in position where he, you know, people had to follow his orders and directions. And it was only Elron Hubbard, from a remote location, who was being cared for by Pat and Annie Broker, they were you know, nominally uh, superior to David Miscavige in terms of a pecking order or command channel uh, because Hubbard, of course, was still alive, when, you know, when Hubbard was still alive. Once Hubbard died, uh, then there was a power struggle between Pat Broker and David Miscavige. and I, I'm going to read about that in Jesse's book, for one of I know about it already. Um, Pat broker was was not the uh, sort of ruthless <laughs> model of, of dictatorial authoritarian control that David Miscavige modeled himself to be. And so I don't think he really uh, you know was was ready for that battle or, Uh, was prepared to, you know, take it all the way, like David Miscavige was. Um, And Miscavige already had a loyal, you know, caterer of people who were around him and would do anything he said, and he was very used to being an authority and control. And, in fact, he, you know, he and Pat Broker had um, been so confident of, you know, being in charge and not being found out about, you know, even some of the shenanigans they got up to, like taking Hubbard's money, and going off and blowing a bunch of it, gambling, in Vegas. You know, I mean, they were just kind of living high on the hog and and, and enjoying it. Uh, and Pat and David Miscavige were kind of in this little, you know, partnership this way when Hubbard was still alive. So once Hubbard died, you know, Miscavige was like, well, power is assumed. I mean, that was his that was his thing. You know, you, you take it. You, you want power, you take it. And that was exactly how he acted. And I don't think Broker was particularly interested in running all of Scientology on a day-to-day basis the same way Miscavige was. So Miscavige ended up winning that fight. And that is probably more a model of how secession actually works in destructive cult groups or, or you know, I don't know, I am not want to say religious groups, but cult groups certainly. Um, you know, it's not like there's a big, broad survey of this. There, every group is so unique and different, and its and its its command structure is so different and unique. Um, you know, a lot of them look very loosey-goosey, or there's a father-type figure who's in charge. I, I'm thinking right now of like the family or some of the you know some of the movements that happened in the '60s and '70s. And then when that guy died you know, all the followers just kind of, you know, dispersed, that nobody really stepped up and took over. On the other hand, there are many times when something like that's happened, where the father figure has died, and the wife took over. She stepped up. Well, of course, that wasn't going to happen in Scientology. It very easily could have, but Mary Sue had already been gotten out of the picture by David Miscavige years before, because she was the one who was scapegoated over the whole Operation Snow White program, uh, fiasco where you know the church got raided in the 70s. People went to jail and she was at the top of the list of people going to jail and none of them turned or flipped on Hubbard. So um, so they ended up taking the fall and then after she got out of jail, Miscavige was like, well, you're not coming back around here. Uh, you know, They put her up in a house in Hollywood, but she was not in any kind of power position at all. He made absolutely sure of that. Um, so anyway, like I said though, sometimes the wife will step up I've seen a few groups where that's happened, or uh, there's some other scenario like Miscavige where a single ruthless lone individual steps up and does what needs to be done in order to take the reins of power. Uh, and by that, I mean they usually have to uh, be pretty merciless and ruthless in, in enforcing their way and making sure that, that they are taking over in such a way that everybody gets that they're the one in charge now. Uh, And they have to make an example, usually of one or two people, and demonstrate their power and authority. And you know, there's a whole lot of dynamic that goes along with all of this. It's not for nice people. Nice guys don't finish last in this in this kind of situation. Uh, If you're not willing to, you know, step all over people and um, and ruin people, you know, just who are your competitors in order to get that kind of power, you're not going to get that kind of power. That's that is. How it works. Um, then you also have situations or scenarios where you have like a council of people take over. Now I don't know exactly what sort of back political backstabbing or or activity happened uh, within the world of the um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. They have a council of elders, and my friend Lloyd Evans, uh, who I've done three apostate episodes with said that it was sort of the survival of the, of the dumbest <laughs> in terms of who rose to power within that little group. And yet still, these are the people running this place. So uh, they might be really stupid people, but they are savvy enough to get into this position where their needs are cared for, and they are able to tell other people what to do within the world of Jehovah's Witnesses, and those people listen, and they follow their orders and directions. So you know, So somehow they got that set up, and um, otherwise, you know, like I said, the group just sort of disappears entirely and you never hear from them again. And their literature just sort of, you know, goes into the dustbins of history. And there have been a lot of groups, a lot, countless numbers of groups that, have, that you've never heard of that come up and last for a generation and then fade away. And uh, and as I've said before, I think, uh, I think the key to these groups actually continuing to have a continuous secession and you know by the second or third iteration they probably start putting is when they start putting procedures in place as to who's going to take over but they also have to broaden their you know destructive cultness a little bit get in order to get more mainstream and attract more followers they have to lighten up a little bit it's very necessary at the beginning that they be so you know, ruthless and controlling. I mean, and I, by, I, it's not necessary like it has to be that way, but, um, but if you're going to, you know, create a fanatical group of followers and you want them to be fanatical, then it does have to be that way. You know, if you want to just have a nice book club or, you know, movie group or, you know, selling circle or something, then yeah, you can skip all the ruthless crap. But if you want to build a, a, a group of followers who are going to do anything you ask them to do, you're going to have to be a ruthless mofo, you know, that's just kind of how that goes. Anyway, um, so I, you know, so by the time Miscavige was giving that uh, speech in 1986 announcing Hubbard's death and, you know, giving this whole song and dance, smoke and mirrors nonsense about how there were more levels and how Hubbard went off to research, you know, the upper uh, potentials of of OT and, and he left instructions that everything was going to be fine. I mean, Miscavige related this whole conversation that happened between him and L. Ron Hubbard, which was just a total farce. It was a complete fantasy. That conversation never happened as far as I know. Uh, I don't know when it could have or how it could have. I mean, Hubbard was there. Miscavige was down here. Miscavige was not going and talking to Hubbard. Uh, when he was up there. That was what Annie and Pat Broker were doing. So anyway, uh, Miscavige already had all of his secession plans firmly in place, I am sure, by the time he was giving that speech. There you go. Cheechalker. I've noticed that more questions you get on these Q&As are less Scientology-related and more politics-etc. related questions. I'm not opposed to discussing or hearing about topics other than Scientology, but do you feel there has been any concerted effort to ask you questions unrelated to Scientology for obvious reasons? I remember a video Tori Magoo posted where she said that was a tactic used by OSA back in the day. Thanks, Chi. Um, okay, no, I don't think that's what's happening. Uh, and the reason for that is because I choose every question that I'm asked here. And I choose all of them for various reasons. Um, you know. And I actually encourage people to ask me about things not related to Scientology. I mean, I think this is video number 177 or something. I've, I've answered a lot of questions about Scientology and um, and it's, you know, I've indexed it as best I can. I've talked about you know, how to find this stuff as best I can. But you know, I haven't duplicated questions very often in this whole series of all of these things that I've been asked. And I'm happy to answer Scientology questions. I love giving you guys information about anything. But I am also, you know, given so much information that it's, you know, there's only so much more to talk about on this. So I encourage other subjects matter to be talked about because I've got things to say about lots of stuff, and uh, especially cult-related things, extremist groups, you know, um, coercive persuasion, psychology, sociology, these things fascinate me. Um, But politics also enters into it, and I know that this upsets people, and I'm sorry that it does. I actually am Sorry, I I wish it wasn't that way, that people were so, you know, about this sometimes. And I know that there's also this idea that, well, I hear about politics over here, and I hear about it over here, and I hear about it over here, and I don't want to hear about it on Chris Shelton's channel, too. Well, here's the only, you know, sort of saving grace I have about this, and my appeal to you to hear me out on on this subject matter is... I am not a political pundit, and I don't particularly want to be. I don't want to talk about things that go on in the Beltway just for the sake of talking about them. I don't find it particularly interesting or uh, useful to, you know, be have all my attention wrapped up in that whole weird, strange other world that is very much a bubble world, and in many ways is kind of its own little, you know, kind of cultish, weird group. Uh, called DC politicians and lobbyists and, and corporate interests and all this crap that goes on there. I'm not any happier with all of that stuff than you guys are. And I don't, you know, when, I, when I'm critical of one politician, there is this amazing logical fallacy that occurs with people that they think, oh, well, then you must support the opposing candidate. You know, I hear I, I complain about Trump and I get told I'm a Hillary supporter. Well, I'm not. I don't like Hillary Clinton, and I never have, and I've never trusted her any farther than I can throw her. Uh, I, I, you know, it was just in this last election it was kind of a you know choice between the devil and the deep blue sea, right? And I know, in saying that, I'm going to piss some people off because you guys, some of you guys are are avid Hillary supporters, and you love her to death, and you wish she was president now, and she you know got robbed, and and various you know ideas that you have about that. And I, you know, I'd say, well, yeah, I'd rather she was our president than Trump, but that doesn't mean I like her or that I support her or think that she's an awesome person. You know, it's not, it's not a black and white, one or the other kind of thing, you know. The thing that draws me to talking about this is the fact that it has so much to do with extremist thinking. Uh, at case in point, what I was just talking about, right, that, that black and white us versus them thought pattern that enters into people's minds when they get talking about things that are really important to them, so important that they've made it part of their own identity or personality. I think that is fascinating Um, and uh, I think it's unfortunate too. I don't think that we should be so about um, people, about politicians. I feel That it would be intellectually dishonest of me and kind of a bit of um, a moral failing on my part if I was observing something going on with a politician or in politics and I said, Well, I can't talk, no, I can't talk about that because that's politics and nobody wants to hear me talk about that, so I can't say anything about it. Even though I feel like if I don't say something about it, I'm actually doing you guys a disservice. So it's a it's a it, there's a lot of push and pull on that, and I know it's contentious, and I know a lot of people have a hard time with me about that, and I don't know what to say. Um, I've I've I, that's my position. That's what I've. That's you know you can agree with it or not. I'm I'm kind of okay with you not agreeing with it. I'm just going to kind of keep on doing what I'm doing, and I hope that you guys are going to stay along for the ride because I I feel that I have valuable things to say about this stuff. So. Uh, so that's kind of my take on on all of that, and that's why you see me taking up questions about politics or, you know, other subject matter that might not sound like or seem like it's directly related to, um, you know, to what this channel is all about. In the end, the channel is about me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's about Scientology and it's about my interest in talking about that stuff and educating about it, but at the same time, I've kind of invited all of you guys into my life and... So I'm going to talk about all about my life. And, uh, and, and on that note, you know, this podcast I posted this last week was about depression. Uh, well, it didn't have Scientology in the title, but we talk a lot about Scientology in the course of the podcast. But it's me and my wife sitting on our couch here um, talking about depression and anxiety and, and mental health issues that she and I have both experienced. And, um, you know, I don't know how to, how to get more personal than that. Um, So that's, you know, that's what this channel is all about. And I welcome any questions about anything uh, at any time. Uh, So that's kind of my policy about it. And and I've still got plenty of questions about Scientology that I'm going to be taking up and plenty more videos that I'm going to be making on that subject. So no worries about that. If that's, you know, if that's the number one reason that you're here and the only thing you really want to hear about, well, I've got that content too. So that's my commentary on that. Frau Schumann. I was wondering about the role of shame. Apart from fear of disconnecting with your friends and family, I think that shame plays a vital role while it's getting also difficult to leave the cult. You've told them in auditing all your embarrassing secrets, and while on the ride, you probably have done all kinds of things you are not proud of, especially looking back. When you're still a vulnerable and traumatized person, I think the shame is over represented and that could also be a reason not to leave fear of thinking not being able to own it when outside what do you think that is a very interesting point thank you very much for bringing that up i think from my own experience and what i've what i've seen with others and helping people out of groups that i've helped is that the shame tends to enter in after the fact of leaving more so than being a preventative thing that stops people from leaving? Because in order to feel shame over something, you have to recognize that it's wrong, and that you yourself participated in things that were very, very wrong. Um, that's you know because shame is a is not a lightweight, light grade emotion or feeling. It's a pretty heavy one. Uh, so you got to really feel the weight and guilt of. You know your actions and i've tended to observe and experience that that comes on reflection after leaving now that being said of course that could be a factor in somebody not wanting to leave a group in the first place yes it could you could have somebody who's in one of these groups uh, let's say scientology and they come to realize oh my god this is all crazy and and it's bad and I've been involved in something bad I've been doing bad things I feel ashamed about it Uh, there's what we call hindsight bias kicking in at that point where they're starting to think that they should have known things that there was no way they could have known and when they look back at their memories and experiences in the group and they think oh my god how could I have done that why didn't I know I should have known better Er, er," you know and all that stuff comes crashing in And that could keep them there, you know, like this idea of, well, I can't face that if I leave, I'm going to have to deal with all that and, uh, you know, so sure, I guess I could see that that could be a factor. But I don't know, Um, the way I look at it, the way I'm interpreting your question, I think a lot of that comes, kicks in after the fact of leaving. And that is, and I think it takes a little while. Here's what I've noticed um, with myself. And, and with, uh, to a degree, to, to with other people. You get, you know, you're, you're all in on the group. You're just like, man, this is the thing. It's, it's the bomb diggity. I'm going to do this. This is going to be my life's work. I signed a billion-year contract. And you go all in. Time passes. Experiences happen. Abuse occurs, because that's the nature of these groups. And once the abuse hits you hard enough, often enough, you know, whatever your threshold of abuse and pain and suffering is, you finally realize, oh, my God, I get, you know, and then you get out. Now, when doing that, people tend to go, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who um, will then look at the group and think it, they'll, go, they'll do this. They'll go, oh, it's all great to it's all horrible and everything is bad and everything about the group is horrible and every experience I had was fake and awful and and you know it doesn't help anybody and it's just an atrocious set of lies and disgustingness and and it should just be eradicated from the face of the universe and um, and that is where you live for a long time (laughs) or a short time I mean just not time is irrelevant on this whether it's a day or whether it's five years or ten years it's not really the point that it happens, I think, is is, is, you know, is something I've observed. So then, with enough time, education, you know, talking, looking, getting some therapy, um, going over a lot of stuff, if, you, if you're so inclined to do so, and many people are, you start going, well, you know, you get some perspective, some time passes, and you go, well, it wasn't all bad, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't all good. But it wasn't all bad. And you start acknowledging that maybe some of this, you know, could have been, um, what was helpful was useful, like when I've said, well, of course some of it was, because otherwise I wouldn't have stayed for 27 years in Scientology. So of course there had to be some good times, and there were. But I didn't want to look at those or pay attention to those or acknowledge those when I first got out of Scientology. I was all about how horrible and awful and evil it is. And it is horrible and awful and evil. But let's not be black and white thinkers, is my point. And you start learning some, pers- you know, you start gaining some perspective and learning about some nuance of thought about the thing, and, and you can acknowledge that there was good and there was bad. And stay away from it because you also, you know, acknowledge that mostly it was bad. Um, I think that period of time is when the shame factor probably kicks in the most. Uh, at least in my experience you know I've certainly felt that and uh and look back on it and went man Oh God the things I did to people and and you, you know and then I reach out I apologize to people that I could find that I wronged or or did horrible things to and there's an and I think that that stage of this and I don't know what to call it I'm not read about this anywhere. I'm just telling you my experience but I think that stage is really important um, because you have to in, order to, in order to deal with the experience, I think it's really important that one acknowledge his, the, you know, the causal agents, we'll say, of what happened. In other words, you know, you, you can look at it and go, well, I was just a great big victim and I didn't do anything wrong and I was just victimized. And yes, for some people, that's actually true. But I don't think that's true for the majority of people. I think, I think you have to look at it from the point of view of, um, you know, yes I was wronged, yes I was victimized, yes I was abused, but also maybe I did some victimizing, maybe I did some wronging, maybe I abused some people too. And if you're going to really be honest with yourself and deal with the, the whole package of, of you know, nonsense that is sitting there to be dealt with, you have to acknowledge that part also. But that's not something that particularly is going to be really, you know, comfortable and fun to do on day one. So you got to go through this period of like,, it was all horrible. And then you know, and then kind of gain some perspective is what I'm saying. I think you guys get the point. That's been my path. That's what I've experienced. I've seen other people have that too. And I've also seen some people who have not gone there, and I think, and and i've observed that they are been holding on to stuff that maybe they could let go if they could just kind of look at it from a couple different perspectives you know um and again i have to be you know ultra careful here because i'm not trying to say that you know people weren't abused or victimized or something and i don't think that's coming across here but i just i want to be clear on the fact that you know it's a it's a balanced view uh that is necessary for i think a full and honest recovery from a a situation like that. I think that's part of it. Hey everybody, so this is my little sponsor spot for betterhelp.com. And this is an online counseling service. It is not a crisis line or a suicide prevention line. There are other services for that. But I wanted to endorse betterhelp.com because it is a service I believe in and it is something that I think a lot of the viewers of my channel could actually benefit from. It is cheap, it's affordable, Um, It is licensed therapists. It is not just, you know, life coaches or something. It's actual trained professionals who can um, be contacted through uh, the link below, right? I'm displaying it on the screen right now. It's betterhelp.com slash Shelton, and the link is in the description section below down uh, on YouTube here. And that is a service that you can get, text help, voice, chat or video you don't have to necessarily be looking or talking to the person who's helping you because sometimes that's a button for people uh, also if you get you know within 24 hours you'll get hooked up with a counselor if that person's not doing it for you you can get somebody else if you can't you know the, the fees are like 35 to 65 a month or a week for the service pretty cheap pretty good affordable service I really don't know how they do it actually um, I'm, I'm amazed by it, but it's, uh, but it's something that does actually help people. My wife, Melissa, has actually used the service and gotten a lot from it. Uh, and there is financial aid for people who uh, can't, you know, maybe make even those payments. So give it a shot, check out the link, fill out the survey, you know, give it a go, see if it helps. I think that um, that getting that kind of help is something all of us need sometimes. I've spent, uh, you know, I've really leaned on my friends and family over the years, but sometimes friends and family aren't really the right person to talk to, and, uh, and using a service like this might be exactly what you need. So, again, check out the link below and uh, betterhelp.com. Craig Duncan, you said the earlier courses in Scientology, quote unquote, helped you. What do you mean exactly by that? How did it help you? I remember you said it gave you a little more confidence to talk to girls, etc. when you were a teen, but that's surely not enough motivation to join the Sea Org. So what big thing or big benefit did you get from Scientology in the first place that made you think, yeah, this works, I'm going to devote everything to it, quite literally your entire life, in fact? Something prior to you making a decision like that must have happened to convince you the nonsense actually worked or had some merit. All right, let's go ahead and talk about the time that I joined the Sea Organization. Um, I had been recruited for the Sea Org when I was a staff member a few times, and I'd always resisted it and told them, to, you know, no, this isn't for me, this isn't what I want to do. And I'd been in uh, Los Angeles. I was staff in Santa Barbara from 1987 until 1995. And during that time, I went down for four or five times to LA to do various things various training and I was at a Sea Org base and I saw Sea Org members and I didn't particularly like the way that they lived and I didn't like the way that they were so intense and yelling all the time and that kind of stuff and I thought "Eh, that stuff's not for me I don't want to be doing that well um, then I was then I got up to the state of clear and when I was clear the next course that you do is called the solo auditor course now getting up to clear was this amazing thing? It was awesome, right? I felt so big, and my life was so wonderful. And really, what this was was this this, this massive state of euphoria that lasted for about a week, <laughs> uh, and then life started, you know, hitting me upside the head again, as life will do. And uh, and I was just kind of back into the into the the salt mines and the grind of it, but. Uh, That remembering that euphoria, remembering that feeling of, of expansive hugeness and feeling like that was really who I was and I could feel like that all the time and wouldn't life be amazing if you were operating at that level all the time? Well, one of the things that one of the landmines Hubbard has laid for people in Scientology is that right after you've gone to clear, they tell you Hubbard says, you have to get up through OT3 as quickly as possible because you are in this zone of danger. You're at risk, he says, uh, like as as a spiritual being, because now you've gotten rid of your reactive mind, but now there's this other crap that's about to hit you in the face that you've been carrying around with you all these years, Namely, the Xenu story and all that stuff about the body thetans and all that. You don't know about it until you get to OT3, but you're told, hey man, you better get up there quick because you're at risk. And I can't tell you why. You'll understand when you get there, but you better hurry up and get there. So this is something I believed. And... Uh, so I started doing a course called the Solo Auditor course, which is the next thing you do in order to learn how to do solo auditing in Scientology, where you're the auditor and the preclear all at the same time. That's how you do most of the OT levels and how you handle, you know, the, the body thetans and all that. You sit in a room with an with an e-meter and you got the cans in one hand and you're writing with the other, and that's solo auditing, and there's a whole procedure to it. So you have to do a class. On that class, I read a book, Scientology 8808, (laughs) okay, it's a number sequence, 8-8008, and and what that means is that uh, it's a formula for taking the apparent infinity of the physical universe and reducing it to a zero, and then taking the apparent zero of yourself, your own spiritual existence, and expanding that to infinity. So it's, you know, that's the formula of 8808. Uh, That's how you achieve, you know, spiritual infinity, okay? Pretty simple childlike concept, really. But when I was in Scientology, we thought it was really awesome and incredible. In that book, there is a whole section on the subject of responsibility. And I thought it might be interesting for you to hear what I read that I looked up. Uh, I haven't looked at this stuff in years, but in answer to this question, I looked it up. And I, and, I, and I went, yep, this is what I read that made me think I need to join the Sea Org. Okay, so here it is. And, and this is, I'm just going to read it to you straight. Hubbard says, The responsibility level of the preclear depends upon his willingness or unwillingness to handle energy. That preclear who is protesting against energy in any direction is abandoning responsibility in greater or lesser degree. Okay, So responsibility and handling energy and handling the physical universe are are tied together. That was what I understood that to mean. And Hubbard then talked about this on a scale. He compared it to the tone scale, which is the emotional scale in Scientology. Hubbard says, The gradient scale of responsibility is as follows. At 40.0, which is the very, very highest level of this emotional tone scale. It's at 40.0. That's the top. At 40.0, responsibility manifests itself as will and can be so pervasive that there is no randomity. This would be full responsibility, okay? So there's this level that Hubbard's describing where you want it to happen, you will something to occur, and it just happens. It just occurs because you are taking full responsibility for everything you're doing. Everything that's going on around you is something you're causing or you're willing or able to cause and that's the idea in scientology okay i'm not saying that any of this stuff makes sense now i'm just telling you what i was reading and trying to explain the context of it at the time and as hubbard describes that as you go down scale and as you become more and more uh, uh less you know as you go down this scale of emotion your ability to deal with and handle responsibility goes less and less and less. So he says, um, for example, at 2.0, blame enters the tone scale as a major factor. This is the level of the tone scale where fault is envisioned for the first time. Above this level, there is sufficient breadth of understanding to see that interdependencies and randomities can exist without fault and blame at 2.0 with the emotion of antagonism an individual is assigning blame for lack of responsibility rather than trying to enforce responsibility okay so this might sound like a lot of gobbledygook but for me what that meant was that if i was down in the in the band here that hubbard describes 2.0 which is antagonism which is kind of like being like louis black all the time you know rah, 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 you know antagonistic If I'm at that level or around that level, which is where most, you know, a lot of people hang out, then I'm finding fault. I'm blaming things rather than being the bigger person and assigning and taking full responsibility for things, okay? you see where this is going? Because where this went in my head at that time when I was reading about this is I thought I need to take more responsibility for the world at large because of what hubbard is saying here in this book i'm being low-toned i'm not being dynamic enough i'm not being responsible enough here i am slaving away for eight years in the church scientology santa barbara and what did i have to show for it not much i had that i had gotten up to clear that was good i was happy with that i'd had these great moments of ecstasy and euphoria like i said but Otherwise, I was, you know, I, I was kind of fooling myself about, you know, how great all of this was, but that's what I was doing. So here I was thinking that if I wanted to really pull off the big win, if I wanted to really make Scientology happen, I had to go all in. That was the only answer, because that's what Hubbard said. That's what responsibility was all about. And if I became more responsible, and I took, you know, I assumed that that charge. If I did that for myself, then I would um, be more causative, I would be more capable. I would be happier, uh, and I would be able to. Uh, so, and the only way to do that, of course, was to get into the Sea org because I was already working full time as a staff member. There wasn't a whole lot more I could do for the organization itself. So, uh, you know, as myself. But if I joined this bigger group of people. Oh man! Now we could really take on the world, and I could do my part and uh, and make it happen. And, and of course, as a Sea Org member, I would, you know, I was thinking at the time I'd quick quickly get up the OT levels because I was under the delusion that Sea Org members actually, you know, go up the bridge themselves and do Scientology when, in fact, most of them don't. So. Um, so that was kind of the thought process there there was one other thing about this that i wanted to read to you also just to really drive it home how hubbard just twists the knife on this whole concept of responsibility he says happiness is the overcoming of not insurmountable obstacles toward the known goal of havingness in other words you're trying to get something and and you have these goal you know this goal and you have barriers and things you're gonna have to get over in order to achieve that goal and happiness by definition is achieving that goal by getting over those barriers he says stepping away from this track feeling that one's work is too hard there these are forsakings of responsibility a common method employed by low-toned people to reduce the power and ability of an individual and so place him under control is to convince him that he is tired and overworked. If they can so convince him, they can get him to take a vacation. An examination of an individual who has been subjected to this will show that he was happiest when he was working and that before before he needed a vacation many people worked on him to convince him that he should not work so hard and thus turned what was actually play to him into work. Society almost demands that a man consider whatever he is doing as work and demands that he consider work as an unhappy thing. Okay, so obviously you can see from an you know, outside of Scientology point of view that that's just crazy because people do need vacations and they do work too hard and, they, you know, and, and uh, you know, a, a big portion of our life is dedicated to work. But this helped convince me that I needed to go all in and just do nothing but work for the Sea Org because that would be the high-toned, good thing to do. So I hope that gets across just a little window of my experience with Scientology and how exactly some of that brainwashing occurs in Scientology. Um, So I thought that might be appropriate for answering this question. Lynn, you and others have gotten the word out about the abuses of cults and specifically Scientology. That means to the mainstream media also, not just YouTube watchers. So why isn't Tom Cruise ever questioned by the media about his participation in Scientology-related abuses that he engages in for his own benefit and by exploiting less powerful, more committed Scientology members? You talk, Leah Remini talks, the writers of Going Clear all talk about his exploitation, so why hasn't anyone walked up to him and asked him how he justifies his actions? TMZ style would like to see his abuse stopped for the sake of those affected. Maybe he could be shamed into stopping. Thanks, Lynn. Um, okay, let me... Um, the, the answer to the question is not necessarily a really great one, um, but it's the truth, okay? And that is that the media industry, celebrity media, relies on celebrities talking to them. Uh, the late night talk shows, for example, I'll use that as an example. You got Colbert, you got Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel as the major uh, players. You got Conan on uh, on Comedy Channel, and um, in order for their business to work, celebrities have to agree to come and make appearances on their show. And celebrities are entitled people. They have all kinds of requirements and things that they can demand in order to appear. Uh, Because their appearance is what feeds these uh, media formats, these shows, and makes advertisers want to advertise on those shows because people tune in to see the celebrities and they see the celebrities doing goofy, antic, funny things with the hosts and and their advertisements play and people see their advertisements and so therefore they think they'll buy their products and that's how the whole cycle works. It all breaks down if the celebrity refuses to show up on the show. If, he's, you know, if, if uh, Jimmy Fallon gives a celebrity a really hard time, like Tom Cruise, about Scientology, he springs that on him, Tom Cruise is going to be thrown off. He's not going to appreciate that. He's not going to want it. He doesn't want to have anything to do with that. He doesn't want to talk about Scientology. He certainly doesn't want to talk about his abusive behavior as a Scientologist. So he makes it clear, his agents make it clear, before he ever even makes an appearance, that that subject matter is verboten and it will not be talked about and is not to be brought up. If the host doesn't agree to do that, whoever it is, on whatever channel, in whatever country, anywhere, if the host says, Yeah, no, I want to ask you about this, then Tom Cruise's agents are gonna go, Well, you're not gonna be talking to Tom Cruise about anything then, because he's not gonna appear on your show, and there goes their ad revenue, and there goes their audience, and there goes their show. That's how it works. So it's a, it's a codependent relationship because the stars, the celebrities, need to promote their own work. That's why they go around on these press junkets and tours and go around on late night talk show hosts or shows is because they are pimping their work and uh, promoting what, they're, you know, what they've been doing. And they want people to see a little clip of it and they want them to think good things about them. So they, they go on the show and it's all pre-prepared. They do pre-interviews before the person ever comes out in front of the audience they know exactly what they're going to be talking about. They've got it all prepped. They've got pictures of uh, embarrassing moments in their past or stories that the host has heard about the celebrity and they clear it with them before they bring it up. They don't just spring this stuff on these celebrities. Hardly ever does that happen. And if it does and it makes the celebrity uncomfortable, then, that, then they can guarantee that the, that celebrity is never going to appear on that show again. And that's the sort of mutual you know, a relationship, the codependent relationship that celebrity media has with celebrities. So that's why you never hear that. And I hope that all makes sense. Ah. Whoa, it is time for Flash Answers. Sarah R. Will you be coming to the UK at some point to talk more about Scientology? I certainly hope to. Next year is, uh, in the United Kingdom, is the International Cultic Studies Association conference, so I'm going to submit to see if I can do a presentation there. Otherwise, you know, if somebody wants to invite me over there and, uh, and help me get there, because <laughs> that's the hard part, uh, I am more than happy to talk about Scientology to as many Brits as and, and Scottish people and Irish people as want to hear me. <laughs> Kelly Smogger. Is your cat named Seven because it's a Cylon? A blonde Cylon? No, our cat is named Seven because he has a little white Seven on his back end. uh, And when uh, he was born, he was just this cute little uh, colorful cat in the litter, and that, that Seven really stood out, and so that's why he was named Seven. Polly. Chris, a good number of people who get into Scientology were raised in mainstream churches. My question is, do you know what the percentage is, if any, that go back to the religion they were raised in? I can't give you a percentage figure because um, studies and um, statistics related to past or former cult members and their activities are few and far between. There has not been a lot of studies done on these, on, on us, or what we do. But I do know for a fact that there are people who go back to their earlier religion uh, from their childhood or their earlier years. Uh, Leah Remini went back to Catholicism, for example, and I have seen other former scientologists do exactly the same thing so it does happen i would say in my own experience it is i don't know 10 15 of those people who leave maybe that's a little high but that's what i've seen in my own experience okay everybody thank you very much for coming around please stick around for the special message at the end here uh, but otherwise leave your questions comments and feedback in the section uh, comment section here below on youtube I would very much like to get more questions from you guys of any topic whatsoever. Uh, It's not that I don't have enough to answer, but I'm always looking for more. And of course, your feedback on my show. Thanks for coming around. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. So this is a quick, short message about the state of affairs in Shelton Land, in my world. Um, You can see I'm using a bit of a different impromptu background here at my desk because I We have construction going on at the apartments that I'm living in right now, and uh, everything is just kind of a real mess around me. And that leads me to a, um, there's a possibility, there's there's an opportunity that I have right now to get a bigger apartment where I will actually have a room for a studio and not be in my living room. Now, this is kind of obviously important to me, maybe not so important to everybody out there, but then again, for maybe some of you long-term subscribers and people who would like to see an improvement and upgrade in my channel, maybe you could help me pull this off. What I want to do on Patreon is I would like to get up to $1,500 a month from where we're at now. We're pretty close, I think, right now to around $1,200 a month. So if I could bump it up to that, then i could actually have the income to be able to afford to be in that larger apartment that's open right now as a as a a possibility and um, then have an actual studio a dedicated space and that will um, improve quite a few things actually about the quality of the work that i do here so if you're at all interested in seeing this channel get upgraded in that direction then please sign up on Patreon uh, and support my channel and my efforts here to bring you the best that I work that I can do on a consistent basis uh, with the three videos a week that I post. Uh, I, of course, appreciate any and all support you guys throw my way, whether it's through a one-off through PayPal or through YouTube or through a uh, subscription through Patreon. Now, what I can offer you through Patreon in terms of incentive to do this is um, I, and when I first started Patreon, it was I was not doing special content. Uh, I was just saying, hey, look, if you want to back me up, that's the way to do it. But I have since started offering some things uh, to my Patreon supporters only, such as a monthly uh, dedicated Q&A or conversational video that just is between us. It's kind of similar to the live stream Q&As that I do, but it's only for my Patreons, and it's only kept there on my Patreon channel for them. Um, I also have some ideas of some special humorous bonus content that I want to put together with uh, my wife, Melissa that I think might um, appeal to some of you guys too. But there's, there's some surprises there, so I'm just gonna say right now that we've got some ideas that we thought might be kind of fun uh, that we could share with you guys. And I am always, always open to any other ideas people might have as to what might incentivize people to become part of my Patreon uh, support page. So that is my message right now. I'll um, be tagging this onto my videos uh, for the next uh, couple months as I uh, have this possibility opening up here see if we can pull this off. Again, the goal is $1,500 on Patreon. So anything you can do to contribute to that would be helpful, whether it's just a dollar a month or more. Some people do substantially more and it is so appreciated. All right, guys, thanks for uh, listening to this message and I will see you guys next time. Bye-bye.